Now, both you and Ayn Rand approach law as philosophers, and so I want to start out by asking, what does philosophy have to say about the law? Oh, boy. Um, philosophy has a lot to say about the law, um, because philosophy has a lot to say about government, and the law, a legal system, is really simply the way to implement a theory of government, a philosophy of government. I mean, if you're... what. A, what a legal system does is use force. It sets up rules that are going to be literally enforced, right? We force you. We jail you. We penalize you by taking your money away from you or taking away portions of your freedom from you. Um, we do those things as the sanctions that will enforce the rules, the legal rules, the laws, right? Well, as soon as you start using force, you need authorization. You need a moral, a moral sanction, a moral warrant. And it's in the... So a legal system, by its nature, employs force. That needs justification. A political philosophy will point you to what that justification is. And of course, a political philosophy itself rests on a moral philosophy. But philosophy, insofar as it addresses how human beings should deal with one another, including how they should deal with one another in an organized social system, you know, in a community that in which people want to share values, trade values, interact with one another profitably to mutual, to mutual benefit, right? In order to have that kind of society, philosophy has to address certain very basic issues. And the way I understand it, legal philosophy is itself an offshoot, really, or derivative from political philosophy. So philosophy has a lot to say. There are many, many issues, many more than I deal with, uh, even in my book, or that more than Ayn Rand dealt with in her various writings that touched on as aspects of the law. Many more issues that I think would benefit from bringing a philosophical lens to them. So we usually hear about the concept of rule of law, but your chapter is titled Objective Law. And before we get into Rand's conception, can you say anything about the relationship between those two ideas? That's an interesting question, the rule of law and uh, objective law. The language in which most of us speak, most legal scholars speak, and to some extent have spoken for a few hundred years, is this, by using this concept, the rule of law at least implicitly, sometimes explicitly if they elaborate a little bit, but at least implicitly, I think, a lot of what people are after when they talk about aspiring to the rule of law or the necessity of insisting on the rule of law, a lot of what they're really after is objectivity. Um, there are various reasons why I think they don't talk about it explicitly, including some of their own confusions and often some of their own evasions. But you know, just as Rand was focused on uh, objectivity from the get-go, meaning from the very formation of concepts, from figuring out what words mean, it's that through line of objectivity that shows the proper way to do anything, to make choices in the moral realm, in the political realm, and in the legal realm. So in talking about objective law, both in my chapter 
from the companion book that you're featuring today, as well as in my other writings and my book on objective law. In focusing on objectivity, I'm trying to be very direct about what it is that we should be aspiring to and trying to understand more fully so that we can actually get the proper rule of law, the rule of law that upholds the kinds of laws which reflect the kinds of uses of that coercive power that the government has a monopoly on um, that we really should have. So I wonder then if you can kind of summarize uh, how Ayn Rand thinks about this issue. That is, what does she think it means for law to be objective, and why does she think that's so crucial? I think that Ayn Rand was very animated by understanding clearly the stakes. What's at stake when we're talking about government power? And I think she made this clear in some of her writings, right? Government's got tremendous power. That's okay as long as it uses its power within its legitimate bounds. So to understand objective law and what objectivity in a legal system amounts to is really to understand what the proper boundaries of government action, of laws, of legal officials, what those proper boundaries are. So keeping the law objective is our means of keeping the use, you know, the government's use of coercion in check, you know, within the boundaries, within the authority for which it has the power that it possesses. So let me say a little bit more about this. Um, she very directly talks about the function of government. The whole reason we have a government. Why have a government in the first place? Why have this whole apparatus of laws and the making of laws and the enforcement of laws and letting everybody know what the rules are? Why do we even have this? To serve one very specific, crucially important function to protect individuals' rights, individuals' freedom, to lead their own lives as they see fit. So that means everything that the government and the legal system does has to be done in order to serve that purpose. So that function of the government and of the legal system really, I think, serves as the touchstone by which you can figure out objectivity in the many, many other questions that will arise for a legal system in terms of how it does adopt its rules, how it does adopt its rulers, how those people will be appointed or elected or which and why and for how long the administration of laws, the enforcement of laws, the prosecution of people who are at least suspected of breaking the law. I mean, when you just begin to think about the many, many different things that a proper limited legal system has to do in order to fill that function of protecting our rights, it's quite, it's quite an array of things they need to do. Part of what is, well, much of what is so helpful about Ayn Rand's perspective is she anchors it all in the function of government and the reason why we need a legal system in the first place. And then, as I talk about it in some of my writings, use that to address three facets of a legal system, what it does, how it does it, and why it does what it does. So what I mean quickly, what it does, the content of its laws the substance of its rules, saying, you know, you must do this, you may not do that. That's all got to be objectively grounded. The administration, the implementation of those laws has similarly got to be objective if 
even good, well-made laws are actually to be able to serve their purpose. And then that third issue, why the government does what it does, specifically, what's its authority for passing a rule on that, for enacting a requirement about that sort of action, be it in the economic realm, uh, personal liberty realm, or what have you. So, again, by thinking about objectivity as it applies to law, I think Rand really helps us under, you know, get a handle on the way to answer the, the numerous application problems or questions that are going to arise in the legal realm. Yeah, I mean, that's a really striking view, because I think you, uh, whether they put it as objective or not, um, I think people get the idea that you can have a non-objective law in the sense of one that is arbitrary, undefined, can be used to punish people uh, who had no way of knowing that they were committing a crime. Uh, Ayn Rand thinks mm-hmm. antitrust, you know, for that reason, definitely falls in that category. But mm-hmm. that kind of richer conception of objectivity, so that, I mean, the the topic we, the core topic of this podcast has always been, you know, the welfare state. And there mm-hmm. you have a perfectly, you, you know, you can have a perfectly defined law, which is if you make X amount of money, we're going to take it from you and then give it to person, you know, the guy over there who makes uh, mm-hmm. Y amount of money. And so I take it what you're saying is that Rand would view that as non-objective in, in this different sense of not part of the proper role of government. Yes. No, and I think that's really interesting and important what you're raising there. Many people uh, these days, probably most people, and I, I mean you're most even legal scholars, think of that ideal of the rule of law, which you raised earlier, in a value-neutral way. They think of it along the lines that you were just describing. Hey, look, as long as we make rules and make them clear, even if what these rules require or allow is itself arbitrary, right, is itself not particularly rational at all, right, but as long as we stipulate these will be the rules of the game, right, and we will stick to them, a lot of people are satisfied, oh, then you have the rule of law, and it doesn't matter what the content of those rules or laws is, as long as everybody knows. This is the prevalent conception of the rule of law. It's not universally held. Fortunately, there are, I think, a few other voices of sanity. But what Ayn Rand, as you're, again, reminding us here, is what she discusses is this whole thing, this whole apparatus of enforcing rules, this is a fraud unless the rules that are being enforced are themselves justified. Why do you need that justification? Because you're not just playing a game like Monopoly. You're playing with people's lives. You're playing with coercion. Right? When we're talking about government, when we're talking about law and law enforcement, we're talking about forcing people against their will. The only thing that legitimates you doing that, all of these laws and their enforcement in the first place, is the necessity of doing that when it is necessary in order to respect people's rights. So, yeah, the content is really crucial. Uh, that is, the content of the rules, the laws, however clearly articulated and, and uniformly implemented, right? Unless you get that content right, which has to serve the, the proper pu- uh, purpose of government, the whole system is a sham and a joke. So it certainly is not enough to say, gee, if the, if the trains run on time, you know, if we've got the, the kinds of laws that work like that, that's enough. That's an insult, really, the idea that that's enough. Yeah. 
Yeah, although I think she did think there was something particularly bad about undefined laws. I, I recall an interview oh, at some point where she was yes. making the point that, you know, you could you could theoretically get by with really bad but defined laws, but when you have no way of knowing when your, you know, life and property are going to be taken from you, oh, that's yes. the end. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. Let me underscore that sort of, you know, can I underscore in spades? I don't know how many metaphors I can mix in one, in, <laughs> in one phrase. But, um, oh, yes, and I actually, I do cite her on this a little bit in the article in The Companion. She was rightfully uh, very critical of vague or ambiguous ambiguous laws, laws, regulations that are stated, and, and most, well, many, many laws and regulations these days are stated in these ways, uh, laws that are stated in very equivocal terms that could reasonably be taken to mean one thing, or this other thing, or this third thing, or this fourth thing. I mean, when you live under a regime of ill-defined rules, you don't know what the rules are which means you don't know what you must do or may do in order to avoid legal trouble, right? So notice the effect of that. Well, now if I just want to be a good law-abiding citizen, or at least stay out of trouble with the legal system, I better not do what this law says I better not do under Interpretation A, and again under Interpretation B, since that would also be a reasonable interpretation of this ambiguous law, and under interpretation C and D, et cetera. You don't need me to spell it right. But, I mean, what, we've, what we have, and she points to examples in antitrust and securities law, um, obscenity law. We have you know, many more examples today when we think about certain affirmative action laws and diversity. Um, when you think about uh, sexual harassment law, as it is usually understood these days, the realm of the ambiguous grows and grows, which actually means the freedom of the individual under such laws, which may be written on the books, but whose meaning isn't clean, the freedom of the individuals under these laws shrinks. So, yeah, she was, she was very clear-headed and I think ahead of her, way ahead of her time uh, in recognizing those problems for sure. Yeah, and one of my favorite formulations that or points that you make in the chapter was that what that kind of non-objective law amounts to is you might have a lot of rules on the books, mm -hmm. but it's no mm -hmm. longer the rule of law. It is the rule of men because mm -hmm. it, it unleashes that arbitrary power on the part of government. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's true. And, they, you know, when you can't know the meaning of a law, even if it is written down, it's also comparable to living under ex post facto law, right? Because I acted, I thought in good conscience, and for good reason, given certain reasonable interpretations of the ambiguous law, I thought that what I was doing was completely legally compliant. But I find out after the fact that it wasn't, and sometimes, I mean, what's really atrocious but does happen sometimes is those who make the laws or the regulations deliberately make them ambiguous so that they can catch people doing a variety of, of things. Now, I say that not just based on, you know, my own speculation about bad motivations. I mean, there was an interesting article in the New York Times a few years ago quoting people from the uh, Securities and Exchange Administration saying this. So, Well, uh, that yeah. reminds me of um, a, a few years back, quite a few years back now, I guess it was during the, the Bush administration, um, some one of the networks wanted to show uh, a movie it, that 
had I think some nudity or something like that, but it mm. was but it was a very artistic movie. Um, and mm. they asked the FCC, "Can we show this? Is that going to be considered obscene?" And they said, "Well, we can't we can't tell you that before the fact because that would be censorship." That's you know you don't know if you should laugh or cry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean it's it's the reductio of this version of law. Yeah. Now, you've touched on this, but I want to make it explicit. Uh, the, the the issue of law's authority and where it comes from. And so I wonder if you can say something about Rand's view and maybe contrast it to some of the more common views today about the source of uh, law's authority. That's interesting. Um, I mean, on her own view, I guess I, I, I don't have much to add to something we talked about a little earlier, and that is... It's the function of government that is the reason for which you have a government in the first place that is going to be the source of its authority insofar as a legal system exists to do a specific job, to protect our rights. Therefore, everything, it, you know, that's, so that's where its authority comes from. That's the source of its authority. Its whole claim to our obedience is it's doing the the thing for which it exists, right? It's got a reason for being to the extent that it erects laws and enforces them in such a way that those will effectively govern us, effectively for the purpose of protecting our rights, to that extent that government has legitimate authority based in the proper role of government. In terms of alternatives, sadly, I think most people don't even really think clearly about, well, now, what is the function of government? Or why do we have a government in the first place? To, to a large extent, I think that question doesn't even enter the minds of people when they think about the government engaged in this kind of activity, like taking care of your health insurance, taking care of, I use generously there, right? Or imposing a minimum wage or imposing social security or whatever it might be. I mean, to a large extent, I think people don't even think about what's the role of government, and is this within their bailiwick? At the same time, many people will think about that somewhat. Some people will think about what's the role of government, but they have such a hazy, murky idea of what the role is. And the answer they would give is a convoluted mix of often self-contradictory elements that by neglecting this sort of, again, what's at the foundation of government authority, they set themselves up for the kind of mixed economy that we have today. And I think Ayn Rand at one point in talking about a mixed economy, talk, whether she, I forget if she actually said this or not, but it's as if we have a mixed economy of laws in our, both our conception of laws these days and in the actual laws that we have on the books, meaning there isn't a single standard that governs what gets to be a law these days and what doesn't. It's a variety of standards appealing to other authorities, such as, I mean, perhaps the most prevalent alternative to thinking about the true function of government these days is democracy, whatever the people want. Right. This is what most people want, right? Take polls, take votes, find out Where's majority will? Where's the consensus? Where's the mainstream opinion? Again, in different terminology, we invoke this idea that the people should get their way. 
all the time, whether it's, you know, on some limited issue, be it an immigration issue or a gay marriage issue or a health care issue or on larger pictures of the mission of government. It's give the people what they want. We're a democracy, aren't we? I think that's probably the single greatest competitor to a proper view of authority today. Um, and then there are a lot of offshoots of that, but. Uh, this thought just occurred to me, and maybe you can shoot it down or see what the uh, what whether it has any validity. But in effect, if the the source of law's authority is the purpose that we need it for, it's really analogous or kind of a specification of the same way that she thinks about morality. Right? What's morality's authority? Well, it's the purpose we need it for. And then the the difference is that do you as an individual actually embrace that purpose? That is your own yeah. life. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Um, I mean, I think that's her view, and I, th- I think that's her view, and I do think that's the right view. That is, whatever we're talking about shoulds in the realm of government, in the realm of personal, you know, just morality for the individual, but not just moral shoulds. Um, you know, how should you get to the other part of town, given that there's a lot of traffic right now at the time you're traveling or whatever, you know, how should you bake the chicken? I mean, whatever it is you want to do. Uh, when we start talking the language of shoulds, saying, you know, well, this is the proper way to do it, that presupposes some answer to the question, well, what is it you're after here? You know, what's the goal? What's the end? So I think you're right that, yes, in the ethical realm, her ethical system is based on asking that foundational question, why even distinguish good from bad, right from wrong, value? Why identify certain things as values, as valuable? There's a reason, there's an end. We want to live, we want to flourish, right? Why have a government? That'll help us figure out the right way to have a government and laws, right? Well, we want to protect people's rights. We have an end. So it's causality, you can say, right? She's recognizing uh, causality versus duty, where there's a legitimate, valid should, that's got to come from a legitimate end. And the legitimacy stems ultimately from the nature of man, not just the desires that a man or these men happen to have, but the needs that are given by our nature. So there are roots in nature, obviously, in her account, but also coupled with, and if we want to live, then we need to live rationally, selfishly, if we want uh, to protect our rights, as we're going to need to if we are to live, uh, then we're going to need to have this kind of government. Um, I want to ask you about your book, but before I get there, uh, you know, presumably you spent a lot of time before writing, you know, about the law, studying, uh, studying the law, and, um, I, I, so I've noticed this trend among free market supporters, particularly young ones, and I include my myself when I was young in this, of basically getting into big debates about what specific laws would or should be in a free society, and they don't have any specialized knowledge, and it's just trying to deduce it all from the principle of individual rights, or in some cases just the idea of don't initiate force. And one of the interesting things I've noticed about Ayn Rand is that she almost always has an answer for everything, but when she doesn't, it's usually followed by that's something that the philosophy of law would have to figure out. And so I'm curious what you make of that and 
you know, what you've learned about applying the principle of individual rights now that you've delved more deeply into the law? That's a really interesting question. Um, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about how much I don't know. Uh, I've gained tremendous respect for the law and the American legal system. And even while I'm very critical of it in some really core ways in my book and some of my other essays on the law, I, I truly, I've, I've learned what an impressive job American law, and not just American law, but even you know the British common law over hundreds of years, what an impressive job the law as an institution in these places has done in terms of giving a lot of really sensible answers to tricky, often intricate questions. Now, that's not to say it's done a perfect job by any stretch, right? But I've really come to develop a much greater respect and appreciation for how wise the common law has often been. And believe me, I'm very critical of the common law in one of the chapters in my books. Um, And how even more sophisticated and impressive the U.S. Constitution is. Again, it's not a flawless document, but it's a bloody, it's a bloody impressive document. Now, um, I've never gone to law school. I have relied on the kindness of not strangers, but uh, other people who have gone to law school or practiced law or taught law. I've, I've learned a lot from deliberately seeking out their thoughts on a lot of the issues that I was grappling with and being very open to issues I wasn't grappling with because I just took for granted certain things, and I've been very educated by a number of other objectivist intellects in particular, but not only objectivists in law. Um, I've really been educated by them about the way the legal system has often addressed these issues, and they've showed me a lot about what further questions don't have obvious answers. And I think there is a danger sometimes of thinking that once you've got the essential in a field, once you know the purpose of government, the rest is easy. If only. No, real life is complicated. And I think Ayn Rand was very respectful of this fact, of what she didn't know. And I've, from studying the law to the extent that I have, become much more respectful of how much more work it would need, for instance, simply on my part to figure out what I really can say is the answer to these questions about evidence in law, or these questions about proof in law, or these questions about juries in law. Um, So I think there are a number of questions that, again, would be illuminated by bringing Ayn Rand's understanding of objective law to them. But there are a lot of questions whose answers are complicated. doesn't mean they're elusive if they can't be had, but it means they're far from no-brainers and... uh, Anyway, there's a, there's a lot more good work, I think, that can be done in really fully um, capitalizing on the insights of objectivism when it comes to the legal arena. Yeah, a good piece of advice I got from my colleague Steve Simpson once was, like, whenever you're thinking about the application of individual rights, it, it is really good to start with just what is exists in the law today. Like, how do they think about it mm-hmm. in the law today? And it, and it like, it, it can be wrong and sometimes can be very wrong. But as you say, there is so much there that is 
very helpful in clarifying, at least mm-hmm. in raising questions, but often in helping you think through answers. Yeah, no, that's been a real sort of discovery for me, and I feel naive now in saying it, but it, it, it's been a real discovery for me, yeah. So uh, I want to at least spend a few minutes talking about your book, Judicial Review in an Objective Legal System. Um, everybody definitely should buy this. I, I think it's it, it's fabulous. Um, and uh, I guess you can basically say whatever you want about it, but rather than have you give kind of an entire spiel, um, maybe you could address it from this perspective, which is I think people attracted to the idea of freedom or capitalism, they tend towards views of constitutional interpretation of originalism and the idea that, yeah. uh, roughly put, you know, that we, we should interpret laws as they were understood by the people who passed them. And I wonder if you uh-huh. can at least give people an indication of why uh, why you take a different view and something about what your view is. Yeah. Um, so, right. I mean, much of the book is focused on this question of judicial review and proper modes of courts figuring out what the law means. And you're quite right. Most, I think, liberty-oriented people think, well, the answer is the answer that the originalists give. And my my thought is more, ah, so close, but yet so far. Uh, I think it's easy to be sympathetic with the originalists, primarily because of what they oppose. And, you know, whether whether their statements of what they oppose are always 100% fair, whether some might caricature opposing points of view or caricature them, but some are accurate as well. Sure, it's easy to be against the subjectivist living constitutionalist who thinks that the law means whatever contemporary judges think it means or whatever the contemporary majority thinks, thinks it means. But, I mean, broadly, broadly speaking in this realm, I think we've really had a false alternative between a malleable legal system, a malleable uh, approach to the Constitution, or taking it as malleable, or a brittle, rigid, intrinsicist version of the Constitution, which is what, under analysis, the different forms of originalism actually give us. Um, So I do talk about this somewhat, that is, this false dichotomy of intrinsicism versus subjectivism, and how it's really one or the other animating most of the different positions on judicial review these days. And actually, in the book, I have a chapter that talks about five different positions, a couple of versions of originalism, as well as some alternatives to that. But I craft, I try to carve out, an objective account of judicial review, which draws on Ayn Rand's epistemology very directly. Her understanding of the objectivity of concepts, the proper open-endedness of concepts, open-endedness not meaning uh, unlicensed, undisciplined, whatever you want, but objectively open-ended character of concepts, such that our understanding of the meaning of a concept can grow as knowledge grows, as knowledge does tend to grow. You know, the more we know, the more we often refine and revise our previous conceptions of certain phenomena. And that's the kind of approach that I, again, try to both explain and defend as objective, as opposed to what the originalists are peddling, which I think 
is a kind of false security blanket. Uh, I think people who know what they what they find wrong in legal interpretation and what they're often right to find wrong, they know what they want. They want some sort of fail-safe guarantee. This is what the law is. This is what the law means. And they end up oversimplifying what meaning is. Now, that's a very... That's a, a very rough and ready way of trying to indicate that there's there's a difference between what the original meaners had in mind and what the objective meaning is. And in fact, I think what we what the, the originalists end up really advocating is deference to the original meaners rather than the actual objective meaning of what was written in 1787 or 1825 or whenever some law might have been written. So there's definitely something right-minded in what the originalists are after, but it's not all that they think it is by any stretch, and it actually uh, ends up suffering from some of the same subjectivism that they're so worried about and out to oppose. Yeah, and let me just stress again, for even if so for people who are interested in Ayn Rand's ideas, even if you're not interested in law, buy the book anyway, that just the chapter on objectivity versus intrinsicism and subjectivism, I found ridiculously clarifying. So, uh, Oh, now do you mean the chapter in the, toward the very beginning of the book? Yeah, the one, it, it's basically Just a on chapter on, a, on epistemology, and it oh. was really, uh, it just Thank clarified you. a whole bunch of stuff for me that, you know, I kind of got, but um, yeah. it really fleshed uh, them out. Let me just say, thank you so much for saying that, because I really worried about that chapter, and, you know, it's a, the book, if I may, you know, it's a book on law, but I have a chapter on objectivity. Now, I very much try to pitch it objectivity for a layman, not for an epistemology student or anything like that. But I think, you know, we all want objectivity in the law. Again, even if we don't talk that language all the time, people are very ready to talk the language of that was biased, that was prejudiced, that was, you know, that was a ruling that just came down because that judge is in the pocket of these forces in the state of West Virginia or whatever it might be. So I think people do want objectivity in law, but they're very confused about what objectivity is. And, you know, we're not going to get objective law if we don't even know what it is we're after, if we don't understand what it is and why and how it is possible. So, yeah, in that chapter, I just try to break down in layman's terms what it is we should be going for here. So I have to tell you, it's very gratifying to hear you say that you thought it was clear. So thank you. Um, so as we, and I wonder if you could say a word uh, about the companion as a whole. Um, so it's called a companion to Ayn Rand from yeah. Blackwell. Um, I mean, I, I've said on a number of these podcasts, I think it's a really important and valuable book. Uh, from your perspective, why is it important? Well, I have not yet read the book. I am waiting for the print version um, because I will read it slowly and with care and lovingly and making a thousand notes as I always do in the margins and on the side. I so look forward to this book. Um, just, I get a thrill when I look at the table of contents. I think that the late Alan Godhelf and Greg Salmieri, I can tell already, have done a tremendous job. Uh, you know, I, I know firsthand from some of the comments they gave me on some earlier drafts of my own paper but the way the whole book is designed in terms of its sections and then the chapters within each section, it's going to be clearly based on the subjects and who they've gotten to write the, to write the essays and the care that they took as editors 
with the material, it's clear that it's going to be a comprehensive, systematic presentation by people who understand Ayn Rand's philosophy of what all of its core elements are. For, you know, written primarily for scholars, for students, graduate students, professors. I'm sure that much of it, and I can say this not having read it, but I would think, knowing a lot of these authors, um, that at least a, much of it will be very accessible to the layman. Um, maybe not certain chapters on certain more technical issues. But to have, you know, from a, a highly respected philosophy publisher, a real compendium of the guts of what objectivism is all about, uh, it's, it's terrific. It's wonderful, and I can't wait to read it. Yeah, that reminds me of one aspect I do want to highlight for people that um, I don't think I've mentioned before that is very valuable, and that is that there have been really wonderful presentations of objectivism, but not as much contrasting her with other thinkers and certainly contemporary debates. And that is, it's really clarifying, and it also helps you communicate with other people in the culture who, you know, are, are they either come from or are aware of these other thinkers and views, and being able to see how Ayn Rand relates to them or is distinguished yeah. from them is, it's, it's just such a tremendous value. No, I think, I think that is an important aspect of this book to, um, to emphasize, because a lot of the chapters engage with other philosophers and other schools of philosophical thought. And again, engage with them for philosophers, speaking to other academics, right? Uh, yeah, that's incredibly clarifying. Um, it's also, you know, to clarify what the objectivist view is and is not, you know, what are the really significant differences from certain of the other schools of thought, and also to a large extent, I think, helps make more compelling what the objectivist view is. Now, obviously, there, you know, there have been some other damn good books written on objectivism. Uh, Dr. Peikoff's Opar simply, though, was not intended for an academic audience in the, in the way that this book is primarily. There have also been volumes the, uh, uh, based on the Ayn Rand Society in recent years. That, uh, the University of Pittsburgh has come out with a series of volumes of scholarly articles, again, primarily for scholars, but each of those volumes is much more narrowly tailored to issues in Ayn Rand's epistemology or issues in her uh, theory of value, whereas this book really gives you the the full, you know, 360 on it. And again, I think here even, you know, a wise choice, I probably wouldn't have had the wisdom to do this, but, you know, once I saw the final table of contents, I thought, oh, yeah, isn't that smart that there's a section on the effects of philosophy and philosophers in the real world. So there are some essays on um, Ayn Rand as a political and cultural commentator, which is, of course, the form in which she wrote most of her nonfiction, right? Not long philosophical treatises, but essays on antitrust law or censorship, the kinds of things I draw from in, in talking about the legal issues. You know? yeah. I'm very excited about the book, as you can tell. I just, yeah, I can't wait to tackle it fully. No, definitely. And uh, I mean, one final point I want to make you just reminded me of is, yeah, the the whole book's orientation is here's her philosophy and here's why she thinks it matters to, to your life and mm -hmm. to the life mm -hmm. of an entire society. And 
I, I mm-hmm. love that orientation. I love books that are philosophic but practical. I mean, that's why another really good academic book, uh, maybe you've heard of this one, uh, Ayn Rand's Normative Ethics by Tara Smith. I think it's, it's really good because it's philosophy that you can actually do something with. So, um, Thank you. Well, thank you, Tara. My guest today has been Tara Smith. Oh, thank you very much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.